Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. If you aren't familiar with the Whoop membership, it comes with hardware and software and analytics, and it's designed to help you understand everything about your body, sleep, recovery, strain, you name it. And I think what makes Whoop different is that we are able to help you change behavior and improve health. I encourage you to check out whoop.com, use the code Will Ahmed, and get 15% off a Whoop membership. That's W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D to get 15% off a Whoop membership. All right, we have a phenomenal guest this week, legendary stuntman and jackass star, Steve-O. Steve-O might be one of the last people on earth you'd think wears Whoop, but believe it or not, he is all in on health and wellness and has been for years. And this is really a story about self-reflection and growth. I'm not going to lie. When I went into this interview, I was expecting one thing and I came out with, with something very different. And I, I think Steve-O is incredibly insightful about his career and what it's taken to become such a successful stuntman and personality. But he's also uh, quite thoughtful about his challenges over time and and what it took to get sober and going through rehab and uh, how he was actually homeless when Jackass hit it big. So Steve O's uh, very honest, I think, about the path to celebrity and the challenges that came with it and really what he's learned about the trials and tribulations of fame. We go deep on mindfulness and meditation, how it's changed his life. Uh, we talk about his crazy whoop data, HRV of 160, RHR of 45. Yeah, did you have Steve-O pinned for an HRV of 160? I don't know if I did. Uh, and uh, and really everything he does to keep his life in order at this stage in, in his life. You can check out Steve-O's podcast, Wild Ride with Steve-O, and you can keep an eye out for Jackass 4, which is scheduled for release later this year. Without further ado, here's Steve-O. Steve, welcome to the Whoop Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, man. Um, like I just said before we started recording, I'm a fan of Whoop. Uh, like I truly am. I, you know, I always say too much, and 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 I just come out of the gates just saying too much. It, there, there's a bit that I'm reasonably sure will absolutely make this new movie that we're working on, and um, and I, I say how I'm a. Uh, you know, I might, I might be old, you know, father time is certainly undefeated, but I'm not taking it laying down, man. I care about my fitness. I wear fitness trackers on both wrists. My girl's laughing about that. And then we do something, uh, you know, like patently absurd and, uh, and my fitness really does shine through. You know, uh, it was a, 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 I'll say this, it was a competition setting. I said that even though I was taking on somebody way younger than me, way more successful, way more talented, way richer, way better looking, that he couldn't handle me on the exercise front. And I was right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm glad that your fitness is, is peaking at, uh, at age 46. I heard you quoted recently saying that, um, you're, you're the most su surprised of anyone that you've made it into your forties. Oh my God. I never thought I would, uh, see 30. I mean, and, and I, I have like this weird dark memory from uh, a young age, like where I just out of curiosity kind of calculated in my head, what age I would be at the turn of the millennium. Like, oh, I'd be 25 when it turns year 2000. And the next thought was, there's no way I'll be, I'll live that long. <laughs> you know, oh my so, gosh. But that was me, man. Like, what made you think that at such a young age? What, what know, seed man. was planted? Sort of a fundamental characteristic of alcoholism, I think. And, and I come from a really long line of alcoholics. Like, uh, on my mom's side of the family, it's quite literally 100% of uh, the lineage, you know, every wow. leaf of the tree. And, um, you know, and, and alcoholism is, is like characterized 
so often by a feeling of uh, defectiveness, you know, like somehow like, uh, you know, I'm just not comfortable in my own skin. Like there's something wrong with me. Like I'm not, you know, just like this discomfort, which uh, we seek to soothe with alcohol. And uh, so, yeah, it was just that I had a feeling of uh, being defective and, and uh, not fitting in, not uh, equipped to sort of survive in, in the world. And that was just kind of my, uh, my default setting. Now, at that age, you didn't necessarily know that you were an alcoholic, right? You, you just knew that you had this sort of destructive energy. Right. I, I wouldn't have, uh, at that age, I, I knew very well that, you know, my mom was an alcoholic, that, you know, like the, the, the family was plagued with it. And I think I could have probably, you know, assumed that I would follow in that, you know, in that, on that path because nobody, um, you know, escaped it. But, I wouldn't have equated the two at that age. I wouldn't be like, Oh, well, there's my alcoholism flaring up. You know, I wouldn't have uh, known that. I don't think most people would, but um, you know, it's sort of with the benefit of hindsight and a lot of uh, experience and, and understanding of the disease of alcoholism. I think uh, I, I view it that way and I do attribute it to that. And you traveled a lot as a kid. Like I read that you lived in London, Toronto, Brazil, Miami, Connecticut, like you're really bouncing around that, that probably didn't help in some ways. My experience with the, the whole um, moving so much and, and uh, always being the new kid in school you would think that, uh, you know, to be uprooted and, and moved and forced to kind of like integrate so many times that it would be distressing. But it was completely the opposite for me. I had this uh, like social awkwardness, like this just inability to fit in, this like discomfort in my own skin. I was just so like that, yeah. that, that the way that it, the way that I behaved, it was always just like, bah, bah, bah. you know, like I was, I wanted so much to be accepted by my peers and, and uh, to be popular. But the thing was, I, tr I tried so hard. I would be like, I was so aggressive, overwhelming, like annoying. Like I was just this ball of energy that just wanted to, I wanted affection. I got exactly the opposite. I was like the, just this, like pariah of a uncomfortable kid that just did not fit in. And so every time my parents told me that we were going to move, I was thrilled. I was like, oh man, like I blew it here. Now I get to, start, <laughs> you know, now I get a fresh start. I'm going to start all over. And this time I'm going to be cool. This time I'm going to get it right. And then sure enough, every time there we went and there I was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like nothing changed. It was always the same deal. See, I had a really uh, uncomfortable and, and awkward um, upbringing. And I honestly don't attribute that to the moving at all. I don't attribute it to the, you know, my parents sort of, you know, not to bag on my parents, but, you know, they, they weren't particularly attentive, <laughs> you know, and that's fine. Right. Yeah. I don't Attributed to that, you know, I just, uh, for one way or another, like if I lived in one place my whole life, I would have been the same deal. I know it. Who, who were role models for you at that time? Like age 15, age 18, uh, Steve-O. Uh, that's, uh, man, yeah, I really like the way that you, that you conduct an, an interview, man. I'm, I'm going to give you uh, some praise. <laughs> but um, I think that this whole sort of like my youth being characterized by like super like discomfort and, and uh, you know, what do we call it? Restless, irritable and discontent. Um, and and uh, so like I always had the feeling that I was defective, that like, you know, on my own, I, I wasn't like enough. And so I was always seeking to cloak myself in uh, – some identity that I could really latch on to. And I always said that it was when I was 10 years old that my first Iron Maiden album taught me that I was a metalhead. When I was 11 years old, my first Motley Crue album taught me why I was a metalhead because then I'd like kind of caught on to like this whole, you know, bad, bad boy, like sleazy, like rock and roll. Like, and, and at that point now, I say that taught me why I wanted to be a metalhead. Like they took like all the alcoholism and it was cool, you know, like partying like a rock star, like became 
you know, I was like, wow. So they became my heroes for just what they represented as like heavy metal party guys. And then uh, when I was 12 years old, I got my first Slayer album. And I, that's when I realized that, like how bad the situation really was as far as like, you know, just being like an antisocial, like aggressive heavy metal kid. But, you know, by the time I, I was 13, I shed the heavy metal persona identity and it was all skateboarding. Now I wanted to grow my bangs out like Tony Hawk, you know, like now I just like I just the skateboard, like it just consumed me. And that was actually of all the phases I went through, probably the, the healthiest one, because skateboarding really, I would say, taught me the values, you know, of uh, hard work and, and like sacrifice, persistence, like um uh, it is skateboarding really is is a big deal in my life like for just how hard it is totally um, it's 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 a yeah skateboarding is a really big deal and um you know of course i was in england uh, I, I i attended all four years of high school at the american school in london you know eighth grade 13 years old like it was a bunch of skaters skating was sort of in a a boom period you know and then ninth grade less you know come 10th grade there were only two of us left and that was when we were really getting pretty good, man. I was making uh, videos. I already was into video editing, and it was 1990. Um, we were, like, really pretty rad. By the end of 10th grade, that one other buddy moved away, and it was just me. And uh, I just gave up on skateboarding, man. And then uh, I decided, 16 years old, I'm going to be a pothead. <laughs> I'm going to be a pothead, and I'm going to take acid. And drink, you know, and like, and I hadn't even done any of that stuff yet. Like, I, I wasn't like, like for me, getting into drugs wasn't like somebody offered it to me and pressured me into doing it. No, like I went seeking it out. I decided that that was going to be my new identity. <laughs> it's like, and I asked someone like, "Hey, man, do you think you could get me stoned?" <laughs> you know, like, uh, and when I smoked pot for the first time. Like, got nothing happened, but I was such a douche, and I was, like, acting how I imagined somebody might act if they were high. But, like, it, it, sometimes people smoke the first time and nothing happens, particularly back then. And I was just acting like such a douche. And I, but sure enough, the next day, I uh, smoked again. Like, from, I went from never having smoked it to smoking it every day immediately. And... um taking acid and this and that and so then and now at this point i'm like like all i want to listen to the grateful dead and i'm just like my identity is of uh just being a druggy hippie kid and i was well, fairly i was a fairly decent student up to that point i had b's and c's you know like my and and that that's like with minimal effort like i wasn't ever like particularly like i was a pretty good kid but once i started with the drugs and the and the drinking my just grades torpedoed. I started showing up in the hospital like way more like from from being fucked up on drugs and alcohol. All my injuries were then and then when I got into like doing stunts, you know, every time I went to the hospital was because I was drunk. Well, let's go back for half a second because yeah, wherever you want to go, you as a skateboarder, I think is interesting. And this idea that you have to work at it. But I also imagine that's when you first started falling and you sure. first started getting injured. Like, was there a moment from that where you realized, I don't really care if I get injured or like, I kind of like the pain or was there any, like, was there any signs at that moment that you were going to go down this path of being a stuntman? Again, great question, and and uh, and I, I really appreciate your your steering it that way. And I, and and the, and the honest answer is, I don't believe at any point was there uh, a feeling that oh, like I, I, getting hurt doesn't bother me. Like I can do this. It wasn't that. I think what it was was um, that the same kid that tried way too hard, who was just way just so, such an attention seeker and this like you know it's all like i just have always had like a, a super absurd need for attention and um i'll always be wanting to show off always trying to to do something like along those lines and with skateboarding and what the video camera represented 
like I could edit out the failures, you know, like that was like sort of a big thing. Like once it was on the video, then now I can present myself as like the edited version of, you know, and, yeah. uh, and as it, as it turned into like stunts, I don't think that it was as much about like, um, about getting hurt or even for that matter, like thrill seeking as much as as it was just being an attention whore. You know, that's like, I I don't consider myself an adrenaline junkie. I I identify as an attention whore. Injuries along the way is just sort of like the price of admission, (laughs) you know, like it's uh, not anything. I I don't have a particularly high threshold for pain on any level. Like I feel pain as much as anybody else. And I think that it's important that that's the case because if I didn't feel the pain, then there wouldn't be a reaction, which makes the uh you know the video compelling you know if i wasn't afraid like like i you know like it's that it's that you want to see that fear you want to see that reaction i think uh that that's a big part of what like what you know that i'm just like a normal dude you know all it is is an overdeveloped need for attention and you're animated too i think that helps a lot okay well cool um, and the thing was too that for as hard as I tried at skateboarding, I just wasn't that great. You know, when I when the skateboard led me to the video camera, I, I knew that I was in love with the way that with manipulating a presentation the way that you can with editing footage. I knew that like I really con- connected to that, and so as I you know, went went on in high school, albeit the fact that my grades torpedoed and, and uh, it was just, uh, I was getting arrested and hospitalized way more than the average high school kid. Um, I did apply to the University of Miami on early acceptance, which was sort of a saving grace because I would never have, I don't think, gotten in if I was, if the last semester, you know, early acceptance was the way to go because it didn't, it wasn't based on the end of my transcript from high school, which was a disaster. But um, what I saw myself doing, what I applied to the University of Miami for was to try to become a creative advertising like executive or whatever, you know, like I thought, yeah, I get it. I, I thought I can make I can I can make killer like videos. I can make commercials. I think I could manipulate video to sell products like well, and I think that that's something that I could really get behind. And um, I remember showing up to like my like I think it was like communications one hundred and one or something like in that first week of uh, class at the University of Miami, and and I remember them saying if you want to get anywhere. In, in communications and business, you're going to have to uh, work for free. You're going to have to pour coffee. You're going to have to kiss ass. You're going to fucking have to, because there's going to be a lot of competition. And I was like, I come to this fucking school to learn how to kiss people's ass and make coffee. I remember feeling pretty offended by that. And on top of that, I was uh, out of the gate. I mean, dude, I showed up to the University of Miami the, the day before hurricane andrew hit and and this was 1992 and hurricane andrew was like the bar for the most destructive hurricane for a long long time you know maybe maybe all the way until hurricane katrina and then they shut down the school for a couple weeks we came back when we came back from the the shutdown after hurricane andrew then classes start and i want to say it was within one week of classes starting my freshman year at the university of miami that I was thrown out of my dorm. Like I was placed on final disciplinary probation. They relocated me to, because they raided my room and found a bunch of marijuana and alcohol and like, and uh, they're like one more, this is one weekend. They're like one more screw up, you're out. <laughs> and you're um, like, there's no way I'm going to make that. I, 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 I didn't think there was a way I was going to make it. Um, I, I did, I did uh, remember they relocated me to this other dorm and I was on this floor with like mostly like, uh, you know, university seniors or something. You know, they thought maybe if they put me in there with like older people that I wouldn't, you know, like act out as much. And I remember all the people on that floor, all the, it was a men, like uh, they did floor by floor, like men, like boys, girls. With, so all the guys on this floor saw the way that I was parting and they were like, dude, if you get 
like so much as a 2.0 GPA, the way you're going, it's not going to happen. But if you do, we'll throw a party for you. And I remember, <laughs> remember my attendance wasn't too awful that first semester. And I broke a 2.0. I think I might have had 2.1. And they were like, wow. Okay. But then the second semester of that first year, like I got this girlfriend and, and uh, I just stopped going to class. I just couldn't bring myself to go to class at all. And I got kicked out of the door. And I got the, that next strike. They kicked me out. And so now, now, when did you start doing, I don't know what you would call stunts? I got back into skateboarding at the University of Miami. And um, when I was not going to classes, what I was doing was going to the pool. It was like the, they have like the, the Olympic pool. And it was like kind of the hip place to be like hot chicks. They call it Suntan University. <laughs> diving boards were really legit diving boards. So when I wasn't going to class or getting stoned or, or drunk, I was at the pool jumping on the diving boards. Like I really fell in love with it. And uh, like I said, I had that girlfriend and she saw me not going to class and was kind of like, ah, you know, the fuck, you know, what are you doing? And um, I squeaked out the, I think my, my GPA on that second semester of my freshman year was uh, like 0.07 or something. It was like, it was bad. And I, and I came back, I did come That's, back for the second yeah. year, came back for the second year and my dorm room said, Steve Glover, freshman. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, well, you didn't get enough credit. You're still a freshman. You know, I like to make some credit he got. And, uh, and, and, and it was as soon as I showed up back at that second year that that girl was like, hey, man, look, dude, you know, I, I want to, like, be somebody. You know, like, I'm, I'm looking in my future and I can't see you in it. <laughs> so she dumped me. And that was where all of my jumping on the diving boards you know, and I had this kind of crazy group of friends and uh, one of them had like repelling equipment. And I'm like, dude, we would be like taking acid and, and tying repelling ropes to like the library and like repelling down. Like, uh, you know, I, I would um, be looking at, uh, there was this one apartment building we would go to and, and um, you know, I'd be jumping off the balconies into the pool like moving up and then I would be like, I made it up like up onto the roof of a three-story building and jumping into just five feet of water. And I was like, whoa, like this is crazy. And with all the rappelling and there's another uh, building, actually that building that uh, I was in with the guys who said I'd never get a 2.0, that building was 12 stories tall. And, and I figured out like uh, on the 12th story, how to just climb because the balcony was open. And so I was on the 12 story balcony climbing over the railing and like dangling off by my hands. And then I would like swing in and, and let go and land on the 11th floor, which was a pretty gnarly stunt. And like sort of the uh, cumulative sum of all of these things that I was doing and videotaping that girl that dumped me, she knew I was so heartbroken. But I was just like, she's. I want her to think I'm gonna die. I want her to, you know, like. Oh my gosh! In a lot of ways, it was. It was. Uh, in a lot of ways, it was just to show her like how, like it was, it was an expression of my angst from this heartbreak, you know. And and what's super crazy is that that when when she dumped me, that was 1993, and. Uh, like 1994, 1995, 1996, like for like every year, probably, yeah, and 97, like yearly, I would mail that girl a fucking videotape, <laughs> like an edited videotape of all the stunts that I had done, like since the last videotape I mailed her. And each one was like more like legitimately impressive each, uh, you know, they started being like, like clothing company sponsors and stuff involved, like things like that. And it's just a super creepy fucking thing that, that I would even do that. But uh, that was my story when she dumped me and I started videotaping the rappelling, the jumping off roofs, the dangling off balconies. I was like, I'm going to be a fucking stuntman, you know? And that was when I, when I dropped out. I mean, I was kicked out of the dorms. I just stopped going to class. And I was just, people are like, well, what are you going to do now? And I was like, I'm going to videotape fucking stunts, man. I'm going to become a crazy famous stuntman. And everybody I told that to just like sincerely 
fucking felt sorry for me. <laughs> you know, like, it was like, okay, you're going to leave the University of Miami and you're going to become a famous stuntman with a home video camera. Like, what a fucking shame. What a tragic loser. And, there, and, and, and rightfully so, because there was no precedent for that. There, there, was, there was no reality TV. You know, there was enough home video or, cameras. Or iPhones, right? I oh, mean, the, dude, the video you age, yeah, yeah, you age 20 with an iPhone today probably would be a career path. You know, like that, that is like, that is like the TikTok kid of, of this generation, I, right? I, I don't know. It, it's a really interesting question, you know, to, to ponder. Like Steve-O, if, if Steve-O was born 20 years later. Yeah. Like what, what would it look like? And part of me thinks I'm just I'm such a, a, a tireless, just persistent attention whore that like I would have found my way no matter what. But part of me also thinks that um, back in my day of duplicating like big cassettes, you know, of the VCR, the videotape and hitting play on one and record on another. And then taking that duplicate tape and walking down to the post office and mailing it to anyone I thought might watch it. Like that's what it took to get your, to get myself out there. And that's what I did. But now like I worried that if I was born considerably later, that I, it would be so much, there's just so much noise out there. You know, there's so much to compete with. And also I think that the, the, the people who like the Logan Pauls, the Jake, you know, the, the sure. people really cracked the code that their success is based on volume of content. You know, I think that that's like kind of where the, you know, like the YouTube dynamic, it's like based on how much are you posting and like, in my day, dude, like it, I, I wasn't even filming the part where I climb on the roof. <laughs> you know? I wasn't trying to film like an intro or the climb. There was no, that was the one I first sent to. Uh, I sent some footage to to license it to like real TV or something. And they were like, "Do you have uh, any heads or tails?" <laughs> like I don't know what that means. They're like, you know, like something to set it up, to establish it. You know, you've got the middle, but you don't have a beginning. <laughs> and so like the, I was only filming the jumps, you know, like. And, but and I, I think you would have figured that out in, in I, a nano. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I mean. It, like think about it. You, If you had that camera on you 24-7 in your pocket, like you, you would have just been, been doing it. But I think it might have been. It right. might have been even worse off for you because you would have gone down a very crazy spiral probably so fast because the feedback loops are so fast right. in today's social media world, right? Right. Yeah. With Where you can go viral in 30 minutes. This, like, you know? yeah. and, and to go viral, like to be exposed to, because uh, I was always still, man, like I have this persona, like this, you know, like, oh, this is, I, I, People, I'm, I'm sort of generally perceived as this crazy guy who's like, you know, unafraid and like, you know, unfazed. And that's so not it. Like I'm gripped by fear and I'm terrified of negative like feedback, you know? I'm even at a point right now where like I try so hard to not expose myself to the comments Cause like, you know, I think most people can relate to like a social media, like, you know, you scroll through and you read like 99 glowing positive comments. And then there's one negative one and that negative one fucks up your whole day. <laughs> you know, like I'm on a strict regimen of avoiding fucking comments and it sucks too, because they the negative shit. Like uh, it re I am sensitive as hell. <laughs> I have the same thing with whoop reviews where like I'll read 10 in a row where it's changed someone's life. And then I'll read one where it's like my Wi-Fi, like and my Bluetooth didn't pair. This thing sucks. And I'm yeah, like, oh, fuck. Should talk about whoop, man. There was something I saw where um, a guy was able to tell that he had coronavirus because his respiratory rate, which is spiked. Uh, yeah. That was a fucking cool story, man. Dude, I get, I get messages like that daily. I mean, it's unbelievable how many people have seen a spike in respiratory rate 
and use that as a tool to recognize that they shouldn't go into the office or they need to stay home and, and quarantine. Yeah, it's a, it's been amazing. I, I mean, the conclusion from the COVID moment is is kind of the same thesis we've always had, which is you need to measure things about your body that you can't feel, right? Like COVID-19 is the ultimate version of that in that you can have a virus, not feel it, be asymptomatic, give it to your grandmother, and God forbid what happens to her, right? right. And so this, this, I think society is waking up to this phenomenon that you have physiological indicators that you can't feel. And so much of founding WHOOP was around that idea that you just don't necessarily know what you're doing to your body. Right. What I think is fascinating is how uh, recovery is not uh, completely proportional to sleep. You would think like, right. I, I'm actually, uh, I'm fucking alarmed because when I got on, when I, when I started using my whoop strap, I had like unbelievably high um, heart rate variability. You know, huh. my, my HRV was like 150, like, you know, like crazy. That's good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, it's, it's been slipping. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, and I don't know, like I, I was on a real strict, um, uh, I was on a strict, no sugar, no flour for like almost an entire year. And then I just like, I just relapsed on my food program, you know, like, and I like st- started eating fucking flour again and not like uh, being so careful to avoid sugar. And I think that that's about in step with where my heart rate variability went down. You know, well, you've taken a lot of variables out of your life, right? Like, how long yeah. you've been sober for? It's it, I'm coming up on 13 years of sobriety. Congratulations! Thank you. So, 13 years sober. So, 2002, Jackass comes out. Yeah. Right. You you weren't right. sober yeah. at all then. That was the, well, Jackass came out in 2000. Um, 2000. Yeah, it came out in the year 2000 as a TV show. Jackass the movie came out yeah that's in, right the uh, movie and the show just out of the gates was an immediate success yeah, yeah crazy it, it, it was crazy what was the moment for you where you realized that this whole thing was going to just go through the moon i mean your was, life really changed i mean you had kind of a before and after moment right for sure when uh the the, the first episode of jackass i think it was like I can't remember if it was October 1st of year 2000 or October 9th, but I want to say it was the first. It, uh, the first episode, I had like a very forgettable thing that wasn't, you know. But at the end of the first episode, they were teasing on next week's show, and it was me with the goldfish. And then that following week, when the goldfish aired, I mean, dude, it was overnight, you know. I mean, and that was year 2000. I mean, fuck, that's over 20 years ago now. Year, October yeah. 2000. It was at, at that time there there really wasn't like video playing on the internet. You know, you couldn't like log on and watch a video clip on the internet. You had like dial-up modems where you heard the fucking phone ringing if you wanted to check your AOL email. You know, like at that time the the media was not so fragmented. You know what I mean? Sure, you had basic cable and you had the network, to, but Nowadays, I don't know how all these different streaming platforms, networks, like internet things, podcasts, for God's sakes, you know, like everything is so unbelievably fragmented. I don't know how um, it all stays afloat. You know, it's like people's attention is just so divided into like a million different places that uh, it it really, I think, means something pretty significant to, to rise above all that noise today. At that time, being you know, being a hit on MTV, like I, I fought, and it was an instant hit. My life was a hundred percent different the morning after that next day after that goldfish. Like I was recognized everywhere I went. You know, like it was it was insane, and I was. It's like a flip switching in the simulation, kind of like right. you could, like plus, all of a sudden. Plus, at that time when Jackass came out. I had been living with my sister. She kicked me out. Uh, I was homeless. I was completely broke. I had made less than 1500 bucks 
all told for the first season of Jackass. And that had long since been spent. You know, I had lost my job in the circus. I was unemployed, homeless, broke, and a star on the like number one show. <laughs> Not just the number one show on MTV, but the number one show in the history of MTV. It was that big of a deal. And people were like, yo, dude, can I get a picture with you? Yeah, I'll take a picture, man. Can I sleep on your sofa? <laughs> you know, like... It was, so it was um, a little bit of that. You were kind of crowd, you, were, you know, couch surfing for a little bit. Uh, yeah, I was fucking homeless. Yeah, <laughs> crazy. Um, and so, at least you find that there's going to be a season two. I did. I did. It was. Uh, it was right after the third episode of Jackass aired. I got a call from the uh, executive producer guy, like sort of the red tape guy, not the creative guy, and he said, uh, "All right, dude, the, the show's a hit." Okay, the show's a hit. Um, the first season had been eight episodes. And I got this call. He said, the show's a hit. MTV isn't just going to order another season. Their next order is 16 episodes. So they were effectively buying seasons two and three in one go. 16 episodes. He says, and, and, and we know we're going to have to pay you. So we're going to give you 2000 bucks per episode. Which, like, you know, all those years later, you know, Jersey Shore would come along and they'd be getting like a hundred grand, like a million bucks. Sure. You know, like, yeah. and, and, and when I heard this, 2,000 bucks per episode times 16 episodes, I'm just doing the math in my head. And, and, and I computed it to that's $32,000. I'm fucking rich. <laughs> like, unli- like unlimited money. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I mean, it was crazy. Like uh, I'd been, you know, I mean, for, for being the son of a, of a, you know, successful corporate executive guy, I, I sure had the homeless mentality, you know? And um, right. I, just, I just thought I was made in the shade. And it was pretty crazy too, because at that time I, I had this, like still the belief that I would not, lived to the age of 30. You know, I was in the grips of drugs and alcohol. I felt still totally defective. Like I wasn't, you know, like it was all a scramble. Like it was this, just this frantic scramble to try to just document enough crazy entertaining stuff so that once I was dead, that I would have been immortalized. I thought I was going to die really young and I thought it was going to be like, sad and pathetic my life but i want but it was going to be fucking forever then jackass comes out and now we're going to do 16 more episodes i'm fucking right on i'm on top of the world we uh started filming season two right away and uh and i got paid half of the 32 grand like pretty like close to the front end you know and after taxes, they, they deducted taxes from that check. And so half of 32 grand after taxes was 10,000 bucks. And when I found out I was going to get that check, I called up the, the, the jackass boss, the director, Jeff Terrain. And I said, dude, I'm about to get a fucking check for 10 grand, dude. And I'm not even going to wait for it to clear into my bank account. I'm already going to be fucking loaded up the car and driving across country to move to LA because I was living in Florida at the time. And he said, you're not fucking driving anywhere until you give me a list of ideas that you're going to shoot in Florida and every state between California and Florida. He says, if you give me an idea list that covers every state from Florida to California, then um, I'll fly out a crew and, and, you know, I'll fly out a production crew and they'll follow you in your car and you can knock out all that footage. And that's what we did, you know? Um, Yeah. So I got way ahead of the game on that seasons two and three because I had, I had my own production crews shooting all this shit. Um, and then when I got to California, now it was just like, dude, you know, I, I was just a cocaine addict in LA on the Sunset Strip, like, ah, you know? And, <laughs> uh, and it was like, people were aware, but like the, the, what I kept hearing was, man, you better hurry up and make some shit happen quick, strike while the iron's hot. 
because uh, your show is going to get canceled and then it's going to be all done and you'll be amazed how fucking fast that happens. And then you're, you know, a flash in the pan and, and, and it, and it ended. And I remember that being like really like, I don't want to say soul crushing, but God, it fucking, because it challenged my view of the video camera and the video footage as immortal. You know, now all of a sudden when I got out to LA and everyone's talking about strike while the iron's hot, you know, they've got to fucking worry, what's the next thing? What's the next? Then now all of a sudden I realized that the video footage is not immortal. It actually has an expiry date on it. As soon as it comes out, it's fucking old news. And, you know, and then you got to worry about what's your next thing. Now it's like, okay, I've been in the spotlight and now there's like this, kind of a, a desperate like hustle to try to keep that spotlight on you. And that's where there's nothing healthy about celebrity and all of it entails. Now, nobody's trading in their celebrity, you know, like, like you can complain about it all day long. Nobody's tr- trading it in and I'm not trading it in and I'm profoundly grateful for it. But with that said, I think that we can, safely conclude that there's nothing fucking healthy about fame or celebrity. Elaborate on that. Again, great question. Um, Fame or celebrity, I think we could generally define it as success based on external validation. I can't be a celebrity without the validation of those other people, other people, right? Everything that celebrity is based on, is inherently, by definition, external validation. And I think that everything that, that happiness is based on is, is within and, and at the very least, uh, like intimate, interpersonal. There's nothing fucking intimate about the relationship between a celebrity and the masses. There's nothing healthy about seeking validation from external sources, particularly masses. But, you know, and that's the other thing, too, is that uh, even if you're doing well with it, even if you're doing well with the external validation, it's, it's really precarious, you know, and to have been in the spotlight and then have it, then you're not a big deal anymore, you know, like that's dark, dude, <laughs> you know, that's really I, uh, dark when you've got your, when you have your, your self-esteem, your self-worth, your identity wrapped up in this super out of your control, precarious, you know, approval of the masses. And that if that's what you base yourself on, then you're fucked. And so that's what like, I'm grateful that for me, the whole desperate trying to stay in the spotlight and, and not knowing myself as anything but that, not knowing myself as anything but the persona of Steve-O and the, myself as a commodity known as Steve-O, that was fucking scary and dark. And, and no, like, it was a blessing for me that, that uh, it all got so tragic and fucked up and that I had to find sobriety and recovery and ultimately spirituality. And now I don't know that I've come that far. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm certainly not out of the danger zone as far as like this unhealthy pursuit of attention. I recognize it as, uh, as what it is. And it's certainly my livelihood. It's my business. But I think that what recovery and spirituality has really uh, instilled in me is the importance of finding separation between my persona and my livelihood, my profession, and like me and my, my intimate relationships, my identity as a person and like, and, and, you know, what I'm really all about. I have to separate myself from Steve-O. Otherwise I'm fucked. You know, I've got to. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the closest I can get to being healthy is to just try to exist outside of that fucking Steve-O persona. And then I think well, by doing that, by doing that and making it a, a, 
a, a disciplined effort to stay on top of the meditation, to do like, to, to treat people right and, to, you know, be grateful and all, all this stuff. I think that what we actually see is uh, that the other side of things, the Stevo side thrives. If I'm, yeah. if I'm, if I only live on the Stevo side of the fence, I think it's all bad, but if I'm healthy on the other side, then the, the I mean, levels rise. I mean, is it fair to say that, you know, Jackass one, Steve-O and Steven are the same guy. And, and today, you know, you're filming Jackass four. It's almost like you recognize you're playing a, a slight character of yourself. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, uh, Steve-O and Steven are the same guy in Jackass one. I would just say that Steve-O was, uh, a shield for just a really fucking sick Steven. You know, it was like, yeah. You know, like, God, I hope they don't see me for, for what I really am because I'm just like my, 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 my self-esteem, my self-worth is just so non-existent. And hopefully they can just believe this fucking, you know, this facade of Steve-O, you know? And then uh, to not to, you know, and leave that facade the way it is, it's great. But like, it's just, I think I kind of... Uh, became less sick on the behind the facade you know what's the most surprising thing you've learned about yourself from whoop the heart rate variability being high you know uh i've always known that i have a particularly low heart rate you know like resting heart rate for me is uh 45 beats a minute you know and like that that's seems on brand for you like i feel like a, a world-class crazy stunt man should have a low resting heart rate like that's a good steve-o brand moment with the, with the the whoop is I, I really legitimately every day I check it you know every day I fill out my thing in the morning I, you know like 100% did I meditate like you know and sometimes I take yeah. melatonin before I go to sleep and I'd ask him did you just take melatonin last night I didn't if I either did or I didn't you know did you uh, like get massage therapy like you know, it's been so long since you could go get a massage, but I have a massage chair at home and I'll count it if I did. Yeah, I did. You know, like um, I do it every day. So, dude, okay, I'm doing all right. Check it out. I got 97% recovery with 160 HRV. Wow, that's pretty baller. You know, it's interesting that your HRV is so high because we actually see people who have used drugs and alcohol heavily that that can suppress their HRV over time. You must be in such a Zen state with this new, you know, new you. You want to know know what the real ticket is, dude? The real secret is, uh, check it out, dude. This is my meditation. I'm on 366 straight days, averaging 41 minutes per day. I know it's funny. I, I I could tell you're a meditator just from talking to you. Uh, I've been, med- I've been meditating for six years. Nice. Can- what, kind, what kind of meditation? I do transcendental meditation. Yeah. Mantra based, dude. Mantra based focus. Yeah. Clears your mind out. Let's the things float in that you need to know about. I did. It changed, I, I, changed my life. Epic, dude. I'll, I'll take it a step further. I believe, and I, I know a lot of people think, oh, what a kook, but I genuinely believe that by the virtue of a disciplined spiritual practice of meditation twice a day without that you actually get plugged into something where the universe conspires in your favor. Cause we're all interconnected no matter what. And, and, and by the, I just think it plugs you in where like, dude, it's a big deal, man. It, it's a big deal. It's a real life hack. It's a superpower, especially for people um, who are hyper driven or have like high energy, you know, it, it helps you calm your brain. I mean, most entrepreneurs I meet myself included are, are, you know, just, just like shot out of a rocket in some ways. And you need that to control that energy and, and, and to shape it, I think. And I completely agree with you, this idea that it makes you feel more connected to everything around you. And in some ways helps you kind of see the paths that you need to see. There's like some kind of like synchronicity where like, you know, being on, like when I'm meditating, you know, like when I'm like sort of on my, my spiritual game, like 
things come together in a way it's like, man. And uh, another thing I do every day is a gratitude journal. I think that, oh, that wow. gratitude journal is a serious life hack that uh, they're right in there with, the, with all the rest of it. It's amazing. I've done, I don't know, about a hundred of these podcasts now interviewing famous, successful people like yourself, athletes, uh, everyone. And it's unbelievable the number of people that talk about a gratitude journal in their life. It's just, I mean, it's not even like surprising that if you set aside some time every day to really focus on and and, uh, focus your attention on things that you're grateful for, then you know, you're programming your brain to be grateful. You know, you're coming from a place of gratitude. And uh, yeah, it's like, I mean, how many studies have there been? You know, you don't have to be Oprah to know that. (laughs) Well, gratitude produces serotonin. Most high-driving people are driven by dopamine loops, right? So dopamine loop is like you telling yourself, oh, if I do this stunt, a lot of people are going to watch it and it's going to make me more successful, more famous. And that gets you to do it. And like, then you do it. And so you're on that, that dopamine thing. But if you never, if you never appreciate that, that things happened and you just go on to the next, then you create this sort of dopamine deficiency. And that's where the serotonin needs to come in to balance it. And it's, uh, Anyway, I learned that from Andrew Huberman, who came on the podcast, really fascinating neuroscientist. Uh, and it's a problem with entrepreneurs, too, where you're just on a dopamine system and then you never appreciate what you've built along the way. Dude, epic. I think you've got an amazing story, man. And and I, I do I do feel like at some point you should talk to kids. Like I feel like your your credibility is a 12 out of 10. And young people who are trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives will be inspired by you. Well, hey, thank you, man. I appreciate that a lot. And um, I, I got to say, too, that, uh, you know, I, I'm, if I have a most proud, like, project, you know, what I've done, it would be my book. You know, it's my book is called Professional Idiot, a Memoir. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's about all this. You know, it's about, it's got all the drugs, all the sex, all the, the crazy fame and rock and roll and just shocking that like how gory and crazy everything got and and it's also you know got this this real stuff that i'm talking about too so i'm proud as hell of that book for being a new york times bestseller and uh, i love to it's it, it means the world to me to get that out there to uh you know to get because because like you're saying talking to kids like uh, it, it means so much to me when I go into uh, like a twelve step store, like a store for like you know stuff about recovery and sobriety. Totally, yes. Yeah. See my book in there; it's pretty killer. Well, look, this has been a real pleasure. We're going to include all that stuff in the uh, the show notes. Uh, it's been fun meeting you, man, and thanks for being on Whoop. Hey, brother! Thank you for everything about Whoop, and uh, yeah, and I appreciate you, dude. Thanks to Steve-O for coming on the Whoop podcast. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Reminder, you can use the code Will Ahmed, W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D, to get 15% off a Whoop membership. You can check us out on social at Whoop at Will Ahmed. Stay healthy, folks. Stay in the green. Hold up. 